All right, so before we jump into Genesis chapter 49, if you want to open your Bibles there, kids, you guys got this little handout. There are three uh, titles for God in here. Uh, This is from last week uh, when Mr. Thomas preached. Um, There were actually five, but these are the three that I'm highlighting uh, today. The first one on there is that God is the mighty one. The second one is God is the shepherd. The third one is God is the stone of Israel. And so I would love for you guys to draw a picture about each one of those this morning. Or if you just want to pick one and draw a bigger picture on the back, you can do that. Or if you want to draw all three and then pick one and draw a bigger picture on the back, you can do that. Depends how much time you have. So the idea is for you guys to uh, do something and follow up from last Sunday uh, by using this sheet. And I think everybody's got markers. You guys all got the handout? Good. All right. Thank you. All right. So Genesis 49. uh, Kelly McMillan is going to come read. Uh, beginning in verse 28. Uh, so last week we covered a little bit of this at the end of chapter 49, but not much. So Kelly's going to read beginning in chapter, 28, chapter 49, <laughs> verse 28. Thank you. Good height? Yes. Good. Thank you. Reading from Genesis chapter 49, starting in verse 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. In the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it. That is how many days are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. As well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great 
and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am, in the am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this morning's chapter, or the section that we're going to focus on from this is pretty emotional and pretty sad. I mean, it's about death and dying, not the passage I would pick for Mother's Day. <laughs> but I was thinking about it this morning and realizing once again, the healthy and good thing for us as a church is that we go through books of the Bible together, so topics are forced on us that I would not pick. You don't, you're not stuck with my favorite 10 topics you're stuck with all of God's topics. And so this is one of them. And this is a hard one. This is hard. This is sad. This, I think, is the most emotional passage that we've come to in the book of Genesis. Um, we have to deal with the death of Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, and Leah, all mentioned here. Then we get attention drawn to Jacob as we watch him draw his feet up into his bed and die. And then we go to his funeral together. So this is a very sad, sad Sunday. And death is something we all have to deal with. And it's confusing. And it's hard. And death is very off-putting. In fact, in this passage, we see 
all kinds of emotions of, of Joseph, where he, he's weeping and falling on his dad and kissing him. And then we see all of Egypt getting together, and there's this great lamentation and this great mourning. And so what do we do with this passage? How do we, how do we bring it into our world, and what do we see God doing? Well, I think there's two things here that we get out of this, and the one is, even in all this death and all this grief, that God is still moving his plan forward to rescue his people. And that's the whole point of the Bible, of redemptive history. God has a plan, and he's going to redeem his people. And so this is part of that. People dying is part of his plan to bring about his redemptive purpose. He uses it for that. The second thing I think we're going to see in this passage this morning is how God works and how God is present in our time of grieving. In our time of dealing with death of a loved one, how does God work and how is he present in the middle of our dark times? And so I want to just draw your attention to four observations from this passage to kind of weave those two together. How God is bringing the story along and how do we now deal with the pain and the sadness that revolves around losing someone that we love. So four little things this morning from this. And this morning is probably going to be more, more care, pastoring, teaching than it's going to be preaching. Because um, I, I think that's the tone of the text, the purpose of the text. And so follow along as we uh, look at these four things. The first is this. I think God is giving them hope in death. There's hope here. It's a little hidden. It's in a phrase that's bookended in the first part, or the last part, I should say, of chapter 49, where it says that he is gathered to his people. Do you see that? If you're circling stuff in your journals this morning, verse 29, he says that he's going to be gathered to his people. And then in verse 33, it says he was gathered to his people. It's not a phrase we use today, right? When someone dies, you don't say, well, they've been gathered to their people. We don't use that kind of wording. But at this point in redemptive history, this is what God has revealed to them. He hasn't revealed a whole lot more, but enough so they know that when they die, uh, you don't just cease to exist. They could have believed that, right? This is it. Or that when you die, if, depending on how you behaved on earth, you come back as a bug or an animal or a tree. There's some knowledge here from God that, no, it's, there's a gathering together of God's people when you die, you're going to be a part of the gathering of God's people. And so there's some hope here that is meant to bring comfort to God's people. And, and I think for us that sit in this room this morning who recently, perhaps, even have lost someone that we love, a family member or a friend, uh, we know this is true, and we know so much more, don't we? And we have so much more hope to go on than even what, jo what Joseph does here in this story. We know... <laughs> that the hope is for us to experience a new heaven and a new earth where there's no more sun, like the sun that rose this morning. If you saw the sunrise this morning, it was brilliant and beautiful. Instead, Jesus, in all of his glory and beauty and majesty, he will be the sun. He will bring the brightness that we need in order to live on our new earth. We know the reality of Revelation 21, something we've looked at before as a church, where it's John simply says this. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city. We have this slide, Jordan. I love it when you guys can follow along. I'm not making this up. God says this. God says this, not me. 
This is why we get hope. This is what God has to say. So he says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. There's your hope. New heaven, new earth, God dwells with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. And then he says this, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. No more death. No more funerals. No more graveside burials ever again. And because of that, there will be no more mourning, no more crying, and no more pain. I mean, that's our hope, isn't it? We experience all of those now. One day we'll experience none of those because death will be no more. Now, I know, for, for me, this can seem like a fantasy. You know, like, really? Yeah, really. Really. I was just praying this morning, God, give, give us faith to not think of this as some fantasy, some could be, but as reality. One day you will walk on a new earth where there will be no more death and no more pain and no more suffering. God will make all things new, and you will walk with him the way that God originally created us to do it, in the Garden of Eden. And so, it says here, Jacob was gathered to his people, and we can expand that to know that everything we read in Scripture about our death and what that will be like, or the death of people we love that are gone and in heaven, what their eternity is like. So draw hope from that this morning. Second thing I think this story is about I think God here invites us to grieve in death. He invites us to grieve. And at first I thought, do I really need to make this point? But I do know Christians who think that if they grieve, they're sinning. Like, I shouldn't be sad, they're in heaven. I shouldn't break down and cry, they're in a better place. But that's not true. God invites us here. He says, no, you're going to grieve. And the grieving, it's never going to stop until you're reunited in heaven. The grieving is not going to come to an end. And so grief runs through this entire thing. In Genesis chapter 50 here, verse 1, we have Joseph falling on his father's face, weeping over him and kissing him. And evidently this event lasted at least, at least 70 days, and it keeps going on until they travel to Atad. So you turn over to chapter 50. I mean, here, here's how the Egyptians are responding in verse 10. When they came to the threshing floor at Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented. I mean, listen to the language that uh, Moses piles up here. They lamented. There was a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land of Canaan saw this, they saw the mourning. They're actually, what do they do? They rename a place. This is a grievous mourning, so we're going to rename the location. So there's this grief that's deep and real and painful. 
And God knows that. And it seems like this went on for weeks. I don't know how long it took them to get to their destination. Two, three, four weeks of weeping and grieving and mourning. So I don't believe this is just a description of what they did. I think it's an invitation from God that grieving is good, that grieving and weeping is necessary, and that we often are going to experience weeping and grieving at unexpected times and in unexpected ways for years after someone we love has passed away. I think the point here is that this is painful. It's painful to not have that person with us to talk with them to enjoy life with, to get advice from, to laugh and celebrate life's events. This is hard. The hardest thing you're ever going to walk through is somebody was with you and now they are no more. And so there's some practicals, I think, from this that I just would want to build into the fabric of our church. Somebody I'd want us all to just be aware of whether you're going through something or someone else is going through the death of a loved one. The first thing is this. That people process death in different times and in different ways at a different pace. So if you have family members or you have friends who have lost someone, the tears, maybe anger, regret, guilt, all of those things can play a part in our emotions and can pop up in different ways at different times unexpectedly. And this is true of all grieving, isn't it? Whatever it is that you grieve over, sometimes it just hits you out of nowhere. You ever been there? You don't know why? And then because of that, now you're in a family dynamic where one family member might want to look at pictures and reminisce, and another family member is going to run from that. One will want to go through the person's belongings, another person won't want to have anything to do with that. And then two weeks later, it'll switch, and the person who didn't want to have anything to do with it will want to, and vice versa. So just to be aware that grief is hard to even figure out. But God invites you to grieve. And it's okay to grieve. And it's okay to know that you're going to grieve at different times in different ways, and you're not even going to know why you're grieving. But to know that's part of it. And God invites us, and he wants to help us with that. And I think there's a sense in which he wants us to be patient with one another and to give grace to one another when someone else is not processing someone's death the way you are. Because it's very likely that will happen. I know that when Elspeth's mom died, I processed that very differently than she did. And then a few weeks ago, she started to process it in a way that was very different than how I had been processing it. Grief just comes in different ways. And so whether you're in it now or you're not, know that God's going to use you, hopefully, to help others as they walk through their grief. So you can care for and guide them. And I want you to notice the community here, the fact that it is done in community. The Egyptians join in. The Canaanites join in. I'm seeing like everybody is part of this crying and this pain and this tear. And and we need one another. We need each other as we walk through that. I don't know whether you ever had this happen to you, but I've been, I can remember where I was in Safeway. In a different, different locations where I just casually would ask somebody, which I hope we do as part of our mission, so how you doing? Just very open-ended question. And I've had people at times share with me, well, my mom just passed away. Or my cousin just died. And just realizing in that moment, I want us to realize in that moment, that that is a massive thing that they just shared with you. 
That wasn't, I got a new car. That was them opening their heart up to you in a way that they, they couldn't go any deeper. And that's an opportunity from God for us to engage with people, to ask them questions. How, how are you dealing with that? That must be so hard. Were you close to them? It's a care opportunity. It's a go opportunity for us. And I think often God uses death that way to open doors for us to care for people and obviously for us to care for one another as we walk through the pain of losing someone in our family or one of our friends. So I think this is an invitation from God to invite us to grieve and for us to help others grieve. Third thing we see in this story, I think, is this, that God, he keeps his promises in death. In death, he is still keeping his promises. And I want to show you where I'm getting this from. In Genesis 12, chapter 2, God says to Abraham, I will make your name great. In fact, he goes on to say, I will make your name great. I'll make you a great nation, and I will bless you so that you will be a blessing, and all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham is given this promise. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed through you. Through your family line, everyone's going to be blessed. And I'm going to make your name Abraham, through the generations, through your kids, I'm going to make that great. And so here we find, I think, the Egyptians and the Canaanites weeping and honoring his great name. Right? I mean, that's what they're doing. They're, they're honoring Jacob, which means they're honoring Isaac and Abraham. It's part of the family thing God is doing. It's part of the patriarchs. So here there's a fulfillment of God keeping his promise even in Jacob's death. He is now being honored among all kinds of people, among the nations, among the Egyptians, and above and among the Canaanites. And so there's this promise, I think, that God is blessing them with. And I think that this is the beginning, or this part of the story has many gospel connections. In other words, it's not just about honoring Jacob, but like we saw last week, through Jacob, and Abraham and Isaac, we've got Judah, who is going to have the forever king. And so I think there's a, there's a long projection. This is like the beginning. This is like the seed of something that we're going to see played out all the way to, to the gospel. So let me, let me explain, and I actually am going to ask you to participate in this, because I want you to be thinking through the process here, how this connects to the gospel. So here we have a father, Jacob, being honored and his son is being honored and being made great. But Jacob is really being exalted, right? He's being honored. Jacob is being praised in some way because of what? Why is Jacob getting so much attention? Ah, because of who? Okay. And why is Joseph his son getting praised? Or why is he worth the praise? What did Joseph do? Yeah, he saved everybody. He saved everybody from famine, starvation. Yeah, from death. All of them. So you've got a father being honored because of the saving work of a son. Does that sound familiar at all? I think this is a foreshadow of that. You've got Jacob being honored from all nations surrounding, honoring this man. Why? Well, because his son saved us. His son kept us from starvation. He rescued us. And so they're, they're lamenting, they're weeping, they're giving honor to the father. 
I mean, Philippians tells us this. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him, that's Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the Father gets the glory for the work of the Son. I think this is just foreshadowing that. That even in this guy's death, there's a foreshadowing of the coming of Christ. Something greater really than Joseph is here. Okay, ready? Another, another gospel connection. Stick with me. Does this story that we read this morning sound anything like a future story that God's people will experience? I want you to think about it. God's people are leaving Egypt to go to a funeral. They're exodusing. <laughs> I'm baiting you a little bit here. Who is it that asks Pharaoh to be let go? Joseph. So God's leader, Joseph, is going to Pharaoh saying, can we go? You thinking ahead a little at all? <laughs> what does Pharaoh say? Yeah, go, go. And then as they go, who is bringing up the tail end of the recession, of the, of the, of the parade leaving Egypt? Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9, and look what it says. And don't tell me if that doesn't sound familiar. Ah, say it out loud. Chariots and horsemen are bringing up the rear. Does that sound familiar at all? I mean, this is a mini exodus. This is a mini exodus. This is, this is a little foreshadow of what's going to happen in Exodus, where they exit Egypt after 400 years of slavery. That seems like what is going on. But it's different. This time they're leaving so they can go seal a body in the grave. The next time they're leaving, why? So their bodies can be free. Yeah, they're, they're set free. So it's a reversal, even. This time they're leaving with lamentations, with crying, with weeping. What do they do when they get set free from Egypt? They celebrate. Moses writes a song and they sing it together. What about Miriam? Right? She, she leads all the women in a dance and she writes a song. It's a celebration. So it's different. Then, the next time they leave Egypt, it is because of the death of a father. The next time they leave, why do they leave? The death of the firstborn or... How did they get set free? The lamb. The lamb. So do you see how these two stories start to weave together and how it starts to point to Christ? Look, if we were in Exodus and I said, what does the blood of the, of the lamb on the doorpost represent? We would say that, right? Do you see how this is kind of setting the stage for the Exodus in Exodus, which then sets the stage for Jesus coming? See, we're in the middle of a redemptive story, and it's slowly unfolding, a little bit at a time, with little hints here or there. And here's another one. They leave Egypt because of the death of a father. Later, they're going to leave Egypt because of the death of a lamb. And so Joseph knew all of this. Joseph knew at least some of this. 
I mean, if you look at verses 24 and 25, look what he says to them. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and will bring you up out of this land to the land that your father swore to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died and they bring his bones up later in a coffin. So he knew what was going on. Joseph knew. And Hebrews 11 tells us that Joseph knew some of this. It says, by faith, Hebrews eleven twelve. 12, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus. So he, he knows there's an exodus coming of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. So Hebrews goes back and goes right here to Genesis 50. And then we know in Genesis 15 that God had already shown Abraham that there was going to be slavery and they'd be afflicted when he writes this. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not yours, and you will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come up out with great possessions. So Joseph sees some of this. And so it's starting to unfold as he talks to his brothers about what's going to happen in the future and certainly heard this from Abraham and from Isaac and from Jacob. My point is this. God is keeping his promises even in death. He's there. He's active. He's bringing about his redeeming plan. It's all part of it. And he's going to use death not just to bring about his promises, but he's going to use death as the entranceway for us to get to heaven, for us to get to him. He, he flips death upside down, and that's exactly what it says in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, these verses are a mockery of death. Death, you know these verses, death is swallowed up in victory. You guys know these verses, right? Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? This is, this is us mocking death. Death, you've got no victory Death, you've got no sting. Ha! Jesus flipped it upside down. And he's using this as a way for my loved one to spend eternity with you. It's the gate that opens up eternity with Christ. And so these really are, are mocking verses of death. And these are promises that God makes to us. The death will be no more. And he says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, if God had made a promise of eternity, we're, we're, this, is, this is a joke what we're doing here. This is the biggest waste of time on the planet. And then he says, but in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead. And so the promise is if Christ has been raised from the dead, then you're still not in your sins, and therefore there's an eternity to look forward to. That's a promise to cling to. Christ was raised. My sins are forgiven. I'm going to heaven when I die. So don't mourn. Have a party for me. Because <laughs> that's where we'll be. Lastly, last thing here, is God uses death for reconciliation. Seems like God uses death for reconciliation. Verse 15 we read, 
that when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we have done. So that's their response. And if you look at, look at verse 15, it's when the brothers saw their father was dead. So the moment dad dies, Joseph weeps over his dad, and the brothers have a conversation about how their dead meet that their brother knows dad is dead. They say it's revenge time. It's payback time for the evil that we've done. So there's a simultaneous reaction, two different reactions. One is of grief and one is of fear. The brothers are fearful that now Joseph will get even. And so the brothers send a messenger. Did you catch that? They send a messenger to Joseph in verses 16 and 17. It says this, So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Now, how many of you think that's true? I don't know. I'm not going to judge the brothers here, but eh, not so sure dad said that. But the messenger delivers the message, right? The messenger delivers the message to Joseph. Lies, maybe, but I don't know. But I want you to notice that for the first time, only through the death of dad, do the brothers acknowledge their situation. That they deserve payback. That Joseph should hate them. And so they, for the first time, ask Joseph to forgive them. They say it twice, will you forgive me? And they identify their sin as sin. They use the word transgressions and sins and evil. I feel like for the first time, the brothers do something that we can emulate. Think about what they do here in asking forgiveness from their brother. And to acknowledge that they've sinned. Now, I don't know if you've ever done that, whether you have a habit of doing that, acknowledging to someone that you've sinned. I had two opportunities this week. Go, Matt. To look someone in the eye and say, sorry, I sinned. One was more of a sin of omission, one was more of a sin of something I did. Something I did and something I didn't do. To acknowledge, sin, I just sinned. It was, just, it was all on me. Will you forgive me? I don't know if you have a habit of doing that, but I'm grateful for their example here. They seem like they finally do the right thing. But the timing is terrible. Is the timing not horrible? They do the right thing, but what took them so long? And so in verse 19, we read Joseph's response. So Joseph said to them, seriously, now you're going to bring this up? You had years to confess your sin to me, and you choose now, minutes after dad dies? Guards, dig 11 holes in the ground and put each brother in there so they can pay for what they did to me 22 years ago. I mean, that's what I would be tempted to do. Joseph's response is beautiful. It's staggering. It's theologically rich, and it's freeing. First, he weeps. He's weeping. I don't know all the reasons why, but there's an upheaval of emotion when he thinks about this moment with his brothers confessing their sin, acknowledging they had done him wrong, acknowledging that they should have pain brought on them for what they did. And he weeps 
for them. And then he forgives them. And he forgives them based on the goodness of God. He does it based on the character of God. First he says to them, I'm not God. Who who am I to bring about the justice here? He immediately goes to God. God is in charge of all this, not me. I'm not God to bring about justice here. He acknowledges that God is in control of all evil, that God used what you meant for evil, God used for good, God used to save thousands and thousands of people. He entrusts his life to God. And then, I love how he he images God. I, I think I'd say that he images Christ to us. When you look at what he says to them in verse 21, not only does he just forgive them, but it goes the extra step and he says, I will provide for you and for your little ones. And he comforts them and speaks kindly to them. And it wasn't, it wasn't just, all right, I forgive you because God wants me to. I mean, this is a, I forgive you, and he's weeping, and then he says, and now I'm going to bless you. I'm going to do good to you. I'm going to care for you. So I think the death of Jacob sets the stage for reconciliation between messed up relationships. Now, I don't know if that's ever happened to you. You've gone to a funeral, and you know that Uncle Joe is going to be there, or whoever it is, where you haven't talked for years, and there's always been crisis. And then, of course, in that setting, all of a sudden, the tears come and reconciliation happens. Has that ever happened to any of you? I know people that's happened to multiple people that's happened to. The, the funeral turns into a family reconciliation party that was overdue. And I think that's what God does. He uses death here to bring about reconciliation between relationships. Can you think about it any other time? We will take death to bring about reconciliation. I think there's a foreshadowing here. I think you look at all that comes out of this death, the reconciliation, the forgiveness that happens, the blessing of Joseph. I mean, Joseph here is acting just like a type of Christ in providing and comforting and speaking kindly to his brothers that he should be really pissed off at. And instead he blesses them. I think this is just setting the stage for us to see how death can bring about reconciliation. And we know that's true. 2 Corinthians tells us, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciles us to himself. God has reconciled you to himself through Christ. It took the death of Christ for you to be reconciled to him and for us to be reconciled to one another. Death seems to somehow set the stage or open the door so that broken relationships can be healed. And that happens here physically with Jacob dying, and it happens for us spiritually in our relationship with God in the death of Christ. I mean, there's so much here. i got to stop talking, but there's so much here for us to think about this week when it comes to how Joseph responds, and to read that and to realize this is how God responds to me in my sin. This is how God does it. This is how God interacts with me. And Joseph is, is beginning here to be another little picture of Christ and his comforting, and his providing, and his care for us. So there they are. Four, four things to take away. I know that some of these are not relevant to some of us today, but they will be someday. So tuck these in your back pocket for the person that you know who loses someone soon, or for yourself. So that we as a church, I pray that we can grieve well together. I pray that we can grieve with hope together. 
that we can grieve with promises of God functioning in our hearts, that we can grieve and see it as an opportunity to freshly experience God's reconciliation and our reconciliation with one another. So may God do that. May God help us as we help our culture and help our friends and help our family figure out how to deal with death. May the story help us with that. So let me pray. We're going to sing a song. Father, I I thank you again for stories like this that force us to think about things that we don't want to think about and that help us to process things in a way that's helpful. And so I I, I want to pray that you would use what you're doing in this story not just to show us what they did, but to help us to learn how we can deal with grief and what we should be looking for when someone we love or knows dies. I pray, God, that you would allow there to be fruit from this passage in years to come in Christ Church. God, that next year, year after year after year after, that there would be truth from this story about death that we as a church could live out and apply that will give us the comfort and the help and the community that we need in order to deal with the grief that comes with loss in a healthy way, in a healing way, in a redemptive way. And so God, please tuck this passage in the back of our hearts and then bring it out when we need it. And Father, I I pray for even the next week and two as we interact with people who don't know you, God, the the chances of us bumping into someone who has recently lost a friend or a family member is actually pretty high. And so I pray that you would help us to be alert and ready to realize that that's a holy moment, that someone would share that hurt with us. And may we know how to respond. God, may we respond joining them in their grief, joining them in their sadness, playing a part in caring and comforting them. God, the world does not know how to deal with death. And so help us, God, help us to be a light in those situations to care for the people you bring to us. Do it for your, for your praise and for your glory, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen.